Well, good evening. Good to be with you. We missed you all this weekend, but uh, we know that you all had a good service here, and the Lord was with us back east as well. God is faithful, amen? amen. Revelation 14 tonight, I want to talk to you about a hope, a hallowing, and a harvest tonight. Revelation 14 is a preview of the second coming. The second coming's not quite here. We will look at that in Revelation 19, but Revelation 14 is sort of a preview of what is to come in Revelation chapter 19. Before we get into that tonight, I want to remind you of something I touched on last week, and that is when you look at chapter 14, verse 1, John looked, and here was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. The reason I found that significant is because Jesus here is standing upon a rock. Mount Zion is a rock. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 18 for a moment, you'll notice that the dragon, who is Satan, is standing on what? Sand. Reminds you of that passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus said, there's two ways to build your life. You can build your life on sand, on that which is not stable, or you can build your house and life upon a rock. And so, even in this visual here, you have that those who are following Satan and what he and the world offers, it's just sand. It's going to slip through their fingers, and all that they live for is going to be lost one day, where you and I, when we live for Jesus and we stand upon his rock, what we live for and what we will have will last for all of eternity, as Nicole was even mentioning in her prayer tonight. I want to actually begin, instead of verse 1, though, at verse 6, because I want to first talk about this hope that we see here in Revelation 14, in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. John says, Then I saw in verse 6 of chapter 14 an angel flying directly overhead, and he had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. Let's remember the word gospel means good news, something which offers us hope from God. And notice that this hope and this message is to everyone, to every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. There is hope for every human being. I want to remind us of that tonight. There's not a human being on earth right now, no matter where they are, who they are, and all of that, that there's not hope for. As long as they have breath, there is hope for them in Jesus Christ. Be encouraged by that as you pray for those that are unsaved that you know. There's still hope. There's hope for everyone. Think about that for those that need healing still. There's hope for healing. There's hope for strength. There's hope for encouragement. There's hope for every human being. There's hope for us. We may not be where we want to be or where we could be or where we should be, but there's still hope. As long as there's breath and there's life, there is hope for every human being. It is an eternal gospel, and it is spread to all 
the world. There will be people, as we've already seen in the book of Revelation, in glory one day from every nation, tribe, language, and people group. An unbelievable scene one day in heaven as we all from all over the world and around the world will be worshiping the Lamb. Hope for everyone. But then if you go down to verse 13, notice the second hope. There's also hope in death. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this. Blessed are the dead, those who die in the Lord from this moment on. Now, in the context, obviously, he's talking about tribulation saints, those who come to know the Lord during the tribulation. So that's immediately what it's connected to. But we could apply this principle throughout the ages. Anyone who dies in the Lord is blessed. As long as you know you're in the Lord when you die, you see. That's what the difference is. There's only two kinds of people, those who will die in the Lord and those who will die outside of the Lord. And notice what this voice from heaven says, blessed. The word blessed here means how fortunate that they are in an enviable position. Think about that. The death of those who die in the Lord are to be envied. You know, people today, you know, especially those without the Lord, they look at death as such a thing to be feared and avoided and, and maybe even denied and all of that and run from. And the Bible teaches us that those of us, when we die, when we die in the Lord, we are the most fortunate people in the universe. We are in the most enviable position. Why? Well, let's take a couple of thoughts from Paul in Philippians chapter 1. He says, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. It's a promotion. We go from living in this earth, with all of its issues and problems and sin and all of that, and we go to be with Jesus in glory. In fact, Paul went on to say, to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Philippians 1.21, far better, not even close. That's why there's hope, not only for everyone, but there's hope from God through the gospel in death, as we face death. That's why we don't need to be afraid to die, you see. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Make sure you're in the Lord, and if you are, you're good. Even when you and I will pass through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear anything, because our great shepherd and good shepherd will be with us. His rod and his staff will comfort us, dying in the Lord. Then notice also, at the end of this verse, there's hope beyond death. Yes, says the Spirit. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God <laughs> joins in. And the Spirit of God says so, that they can rest from their hard work because their deeds will follow them. Oh, this is good. First of all, the, the phrase hard work speaks about our earthly mission being completed. Now think about that. That says much to us as Christians. That means that each of us has a mission from God. 
and that you and I will not die and depart and be with Christ until our mission is completed. And yes, God makes no bones about it. That's hard work. It's hard work to serve the Lord. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. We've been talking about this through our study of 2 Corinthians, but it will be worth it all one day because as we've seen throughout our study of Revelation, the glory that we will receive and be a part of is so disproportionate to anything that we will go through here on earth. For one reason is because even if we go through pain and suffering all our life compared to forever, it's only a short time on the timeline of eternity. So be encouraged. First of all, God has a mission for each of his children. And until that mission is completed, as we've said before, you and I are indestructible. But then notice what else there is as far as a hope beyond death. Our deeds will follow us into heaven and into eternity. Our spiritual fruit from our earthly service will follow us. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust as to forget our work and labor of love that we have shown towards his name and that we have ministered to the saints and beyond, Hebrews 6.10. God will not forget. God will reward. God will requite us for all the hard work that we have done. And the things that we have invested in eternity in will follow us into heaven. As Paul says in Corinthians 1.3, he says that our lives will pass through a fire and the fire will burn up anything of earth, but anything eternal will pass through that fire and on into eternity. All the lives that you and I have touched and influenced and impacted for Christ and for his kingdom on earth will also obviously be there as well. Many of us will meet people that we've never met on earth who in some way will be impacted by our faith here on earth, and we will meet them in heaven one day just as we will be thanking others who maybe we never met in person here on earth, but they had some kind of impact upon our spiritual walk and our spiritual life. See, this is the hope. And this is the hope that God wants to give even to the earth dwellers, even during the darkest time of history before the second coming. But we can apply all of this to us today. There is hope for every one of us. There's a hope even as we face death, and there's a hope that God gives us even beyond death. But there's also a hallowing that we see here. I say a hallowing because Jesus, even as he taught his disciples to pray in the Gospel of Matthew, says these words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. To hallow something is, is, is to set it apart, to be reminded that it is sacred, that it is special. And we're going to see now through this passage that our God is to be hallowed by our lives. And we're going to see here tonight in Revelation 14, eight ways 
that you and I can hallow our God. Because it's one thing to say God should be hallowed. It's another thing to say, well, how do we do it? So we're going to talk about that tonight. And that's why, can I say, too, the book of Revelation is so much about worship. So much about worship. If someone was to ask me, Pastor, point me to a chapter in the Bible that teaches us how to hallow our God. To me, the best chapter would be Revelation 14. So let's look at it tonight. First of all, if you go back to verse 1, we hallow God in beholding him. Literally in the original language, it's not then I looked and here was the lamb. It's literally behold the lamb. See the lamb. Look at the lamb. Consider the lamb. The lamb. The one who redeemed us. In fact, this is mentioned in verse 4. These were the redeemed from humanity as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. To be redeemed is to be purchased, to be bought. And we are reminded throughout the Word of God that we were bought with a great price, the sacrificial body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And therefore, one way that you and I can hallow the Lord is simply to behold Him. to look at him, to see him. I couldn't help but think of this as Nicole was praying tonight, as she was reminding us about how let's not get caught up in the things that really don't matter and let's pay attention to God. That's what John is saying. That's, that's a way to hallow the Lord. Take time to behold our God. So often we're so busy and you know, even as Christians, we can rush, 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 and sometimes it's just good just to take a fresh look at Jesus, to consider him, to contemplate him, to meditate upon him, to behold the Lamb of God, to be reminded of the sacrifice and of the price of our redemption and our salvation, beholding the Lamb. There's another way to hallow him. And that is in not just beholding, but in revealing. Notice, then I looked, and here was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead, foreheads. Why would God write the name of God and the name of the Lamb on the foreheads of these 144,000 so that others may see it? so that others may see it during the tribulation period. Not only as a way to communicate their mind, ownership, if you will, but also to let others see him through them. That's a way you and I can hallow God, by revealing him to others, by allowing others to see God in us. No, God doesn't put his name on our forehead today, but God places his spirit within us so that you and I can, can emit, if you will, or express the fruit of the spirit so that others can see God in us. We see this throughout the Gospels. We see it in the book of Acts, where others could recognize that people had been with Jesus and were following Jesus. 
and had been influenced and impacted by Jesus. And isn't it interesting, in fact, in the way this is done, that in order to reveal him, you and I first have to behold him. We have to take him in. You can't give out what you're not taking in. So John begins with first, behold the lamb. As you and I behold him and look at him and see him and soak him up, then you and I can emit him and reveal him and express him to others. Two ways of hallowing our God. Third, we hallow him in praising him. Now, a sound I heard was like that made by harpists playing their harps, the end of verse 2. And they were singing a new, a fresh song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, the worship leaders of heaven. No one was able to learn a song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. I'll come back to that in just a minute, but I want to go back to verse 3. They were singing. They were praising. They were celebrating their God. That is a way that you and I can hallow him and express how special he is, how much we admire and adore and appreciate him. It's not just by beholding him and revealing him, but by praising him. New, we've talked about this. Nothing wrong with old songs, but we must write and sing new songs because... God wants to keep our praise current, up-to-date, and not stale. And it's got to be in response to what God is doing presently, not just what God has done in the past. That's why God always will move upon his people to write new songs. But in this context, notice something also very specific. Only the 144,000 we're able to sing this particular song. Why? Because they're the only ones that could truly appreciate what this song was expressing. In other words, what they specifically went through as that 144,000 Jewish witnesses who were separated and marked off during the tribulation period to be his witnesses, if you will, there was something in the words of this song that only could resonate with them, no one else, because only they went through what they went through. But I want to tell you something. I believe that just like this, God has specific songs just for certain groups of Christians that only they can sing because only that group of Christians has, has went through that. Only maybe that church is going through that moving of God. Therefore, only those people can truly appreciate what that song will say and what it will express. And I also believe that every one of us one day will have a song of praise that you and I will sing to God that's just for us that just expresses what you and I, in a sense, with God, had that only we will appreciate. It'll be our personal praise song to God throughout all of eternity. See, that, 
That's how specific God is. That's how personal God is. And that's one of the other ways that you and I hallow him is by praising him. Another way we hallow him is by following him. These specific ones, verse 4, were those who did not defile themselves with women. They were virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found upon their lips, and they were blameless. In this particular setting in history, they didn't marry. That doesn't mean it's wrong for us to marry in this time. It's just they were so locked in for such a short amount of time, seven years upon this earth, that they just were completely undiluted and undistracted by anything normal about earth. But I want to zero in on that particular phrase because it's important. They were also the ones, because this applies to us even today, These are the ones who notice, follow, accompany, be his disciple wherever he goes. Wherever he goes. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you lead. That's a way to hallow God. We hallow God in following him wherever he goes. Because let's face it, sometimes where God takes us, we wouldn't choose to go there. But that shows that we are hallowing him by following him wherever he leads us, you see. Then if you go up to verse 7. In this eternal gospel, there's a particular message. And in that message, he declared in a loud voice, first, fear God. So next, we hallow God in revering him. Literally, the word fear means to be in awe of God. That's a way to hallow God, to live in reverence and respect and to be in awe of God. Live in awe of God. As long as I've been a Christian, and even as long as I've been a pastor, do you know God wows me every day if I pay attention? I mean, literally, every day there's something that God does or says or whatever. It's just go, wow, God. And here's the crazy thing. I won't speak for you, but I speak for me. I actually get surprised by that. Why? Why do I continue to be surprised that I get wowed by God? Because here's the deal. God's going to wow us for all of eternity. He's just getting wound up. Wait till we get to heaven. Be in awe of God. So we hallow him that way. Next, we also hallow him by giving him glory. So we hallow him by honoring him. Not just in revering him, but by honoring honoring him. Now, I want to make this point. We never add to his worth. We simply acknowledge his worth. You and I can't add anything to God, nor can we take anything away from God. But we can give him glory. We can acknowledge his worth and value. And that's what this phrase means. And that's how we 
hallow him by honoring him. By expressing to him, both with our lips and with our life, that there is no one in the universe of greater value or worth than he is. Now, there's another message in this eternal gospel, one more. Because the hour of his judgment has arrived and worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We also then hallow God by worshiping him. Worshiping him. And this word worship means to adore on bended knee. There's a lot even in that visual. To adore him on bended knee. Do you realize when Jesus was a baby and first came into this world, that's exactly how the first people who met the baby Jesus responded to him? Think of the shepherds. The Bible says when the shepherds got there that night, they bowed their knee and worshiped the baby Jesus. When the wise men came from the east to see the young child, what did they do? They bowed their knee and worshiped and offered him their gifts. Even from the very beginning of his life on earth, the model was we worship him by bowing our knee and being reminded He's supreme. He's supreme. He's overall. That's worship. Putting Jesus in his rightful place. And it would be one thing, think about it, to do that as a human being when he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah, in power, in great glory, riding on that white horse out of Revelation 19. It's another thing to worship him and adore him on bended knee when he's a little tiny baby, looking no differently than any other baby that's ever been born, looking just as vulnerable. And yet, he's the Christ child, something special. Hallowed be that baby. One more. We also hallow God in trusting him, in trusting him. Again, the time of tribulation is going to be a time of great upheaval, darkness like never before on earth, which is why this verse is repeated again in chapter 14 that we've seen two other times already in the book of Revelation. Chapter 14, verse 12 says, this time is going to require the steadfast endurance of the saints, courageous resolve and supernatural staying power that can only come from God. And those who obey, literally, keep their eyes on God's commandments at all times. And here it is, and hold firmly to their faith in Jesus. We hallow God by trusting him, by trusting him. You're going to hear a lot more about trusting in God on Sunday out of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Must be something God wants to really have us focus on right now at the Oasis. Trust me. Hold firmly to our faith. Keep trusting in the Lord. You'll hear this verse or these verses again on Sunday. These were probably 
two verses that I memorized first as a Christian. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Trust the Lord with all your heart. All of it. Rest completely in him. Hold firmly to your faith. We hallow God, not only by beholding and revealing and praising and following and revering and honoring and worshiping, but by trusting. But there's one more part of this passage. We've seen hope here. We've seen hallowing here. But there's a harvest, and this is the preview of the second coming. Verse 14. Then I looked, and a white cloud appeared, and seated on the glory cloud was one like the Son of Man, a messianic title of Jesus Christ in Scripture, taken from Daniel chapter 7. He had a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple, shouting in a loud voice to the one seated on the cloud, Use your sickle, which is used for a harvest, to start to reap, because notice, key phrase, the time has finally come to reap, since the earth's harvest is ripe. The harvest in the Old Testament was a figure of divine judgment. So the one seated on the cloud, verse 16, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped and harvested. As I read this passage from Revelation 14, I can't help but think of a very familiar song that you and I know, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage of the grapes of wrath are stored, where the grapes of wrath are stored. By the way, the lady that wrote that song was not just trying to express her faith in God during the Civil War, because it was written during the Civil War, not just as a song of pro-union, it was actually a song written to express that there are times where going to battle is a righteous thing, that going to war is actually something that's right, that bringing about justice is something good and right. And that's why she linked it with what God's going to do one day when he comes to harvest the earth. See, a harvest is coming. In fact, in closing tonight, you can leave Revelation 14. I'd like you to go back to Galatians chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8, and let's just be reminded of these very important verses tonight as we wrap up our study of Revelation 14, because Paul talks about this principle of reaping and sowing and a harvest. Now, let me say this before we look at these verses. You and I are sowing as well. And we can be sowing eternal things and therefore reap eternal things. 
Therefore, when we are harvested or our lives are harvested, it's actually going to be rewards that we get. But for those who do not know the Lord, for those who have lived for worldly, temporal, and earthly things, when God brings his harvest upon this earth, they will lose everything that they've ever lived for, and they will have nothing to show for their earthly life. And Paul points out this principle in chapter 6 of Galatians. Look at verses 7 and 8. First of all, he says, Do not be deceived. Do not deviate from this truth. What is this specific truth that we should not ever deviate from? God, Theos, the one and only God, will not be made a fool. He will not be uh, insulted. He will not be belittled. He will not be brushed off. He will not be pushed aside. He will not be treated with contempt. Use any one of them. That's what it means. For a person will reap or harvest what he sows. Because the person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption. What's it mean? Nothing of eternal value or reward. That's what it means. Nothing of eternal. They won't carry anything into eternity. Nothing. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. You and I will reap unending benefits and blessings when we sow to the Spirit. Because as we saw already in Revelation 14, when we get there after death, we will rest from our hard work here and our deeds will follow us. By the way, I forgot or failed to point this out when we went back there, so I'll finish with this. That phrase, hard work here, speaks about our earthly mission is completed. That doesn't mean that in eternity we won't still have a mission or a purpose or a service. That phrase is only speaking about our earthly mission being completed. God has a place and plan and purpose for us throughout his eternal kingdom. We'll always have a place and purpose and service to the King of kings and Lord of lords. May we seek as God's people today to take the message of Revelation 14 and realize that through the eternal gospel, God gives us a hope, ways of hallowing him, and a reminder of the harvest that is coming one day upon the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for the opportunity we've had to come here tonight and revere you and behold you and praise you and follow you, and worship you, and honor you, and trust you. And God, I, I would ask that we would be filled with hope tonight as your people. Lord, you 
give us hope. You fill us with hope. We can live in confident expectation of what we know is coming because you've said it and you are faithful to your word. So may we live in that hope. But God, may you also remind us through your spirit to encourage us as Christians to live our lives sowing eternal things and sowing to the spirit so that we can reap a great eternal harvest one day. Not for our own glory, Lord, but for your glory. Because there is a harvest coming. There is an end coming to this world as we know it and an end coming to each and every human being who's ever lived. And we need to keep our eye on the end so that we can live for the moment to its fullest. So God, help us even as a church to reap a great harvest as we sow, Lord, the things you've given us to sow. May we wring out of our existence here on this planet everything, God, that we could. May we live up to our potential as a church and as individual followers of Jesus Christ. And take us from this place tonight, God, refreshed and refueled and encouraged, God, as only you can do it. Excite us, God, about what you have for us that's just waiting a few days, a few weeks, a few months, maybe even a few years from now that we can be a part of to make a difference for eternity. And we ask all these things again in the wonderful and powerful and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.